This is a Morley Radio podcast. Welcome to Series 2 of the London Hat Week podcast and a big thank you to Morley Radio for producing and making this possible. Due to the pandemic, we are not in the studio and we're recording this remotely, so apologies for any sound glitches. I'm Becky Weaver, co-founder of London Hat Week and also the editor of Hat Talk e-magazine. I'm Georgina Abbott, co-founder of London Hat Week and owner of Atelier Millinery, a headwear business based in London. For episode three, we're very lucky to be joined by Rachel Frost, hatter, felt maker and historian with a passion for understanding the origins and the minutiae of processes behind traditional crafts. You may know Rachel as the Crafty Beggars or Rachel Frost Hatter on Instagram. We first met Rachel in person when she arrived at London Hat Week one year wearing the largest bicorn hat that anyone had ever seen before or since. Rachel's a hatter and a historian. Inspired by a love of folk tradition and history, she uses a variety of traditional craft skills to create both historical hats and her own original designs. Sustainability and the environment play a fundamental role in her making process, using natural materials, foraged plant fibers, natural plant dyes, and low-impact technology. Rachel's also a new member of the British Hat Guild, so congratulations on that. Rachel, welcome, and thank you for taking part in the London Hat Week podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you. Um, You're involved in so many different activities that it was hard to choose what to talk to you about today. We'll try to share a little bit about all your different areas of work, but we're very interested in what you call your experimental archaeology and your research into a very specific way of making men's felt hats. Um, Could you just tell us a little bit more about what that means and, and what you do? Um, well, maybe I'll start at the beginning and I can tell you how, how I got involved in it in the first place because um, it's quite a it's a kind of meandering route that I, I took to, to get there. Um, so initially I, I studied model animation um, up in Edinburgh and I really thought I was going to be a model maker or, or a puppet maker or something, something in the animation world. So I did, I did that for a few years um, after leaving university. Um, but then I started to get interested in traditional crafts and, and like so using natural materials was interesting me more. I wanted to move away from the city and, and have something that I could be more uh, like self-employed and, and, and work from. I, I like living in the countryside, really, a bit of a country bumpkin. So I, I dabbled in all sorts of materials. I'm totally, totally self-taught. I'm, I'm quite proudly self-taught. So I just get lots of books and I, I taught myself skills like basket making, natural dyeing, um, anything, anything I could think, anything I could try and get my hands on. Um, and then I, I started to, I, somebody gave me a book on felt making uh, and it had very basic instructions about making a felt hat. So I just went around uh, the fields and I gathered little bits of wool off the fences and just made myself a very crude hat, very embarrassingly sort of rustic. Um, but it was, it just kind of sparked an interest uh, in, in the process. Um, and that was the beginning and it's just kind of grown from there. So I started to make hats for the, the heritage industry, I found that there were people that were actually interested in in the process um, of of making felt hats because it, it was relevant to a time period in history that they were trying to recreate. So my, initially, my customers were mostly reenactors. Uh, so um, there's actually quite a large reenactment scene in Britain, actually all over Europe, where people kind of um, they take themselves away from their their day to day living and they dress up and become somebody else from another time period 
Um, and throughout history, certainly in, in more so than, than today, people wore hats all the time. Like men, women, everybody wore hats. So I found this was quite a good um, avenue for me to kind of present hats and a really receptive audience and really welcoming and very enthusiastic about it all. So that was the um, that was the beginning of, of my my hatting foray. I mean, I still do lots of other crafts as well. Uh, mostly, again, for the heritage industry, so lots of museum work. Um, I do a lot of demonstrating of the crafts that I do, um, and I usually dress up. You know, you get the full the full experience. So you you often find me at an event dressed up in it could be a medieval, it could be Tudor outfit, demonstrating my craft so that people kind of feel they feel like they've actually stepped back in time and they can actually see how how a hat maker worked um, years ago. And and to be honest, it wasn't a far cry from the way I was living quite an alternative life. And it, it you know, I, I feel like I've, I'm really a bit of a time traveller anyway. I'm kind of born in the wrong time period. I think it probably <laughs> should have been born in about 1450. Um, so was reenactment something you were involved in before this all started? No, no, really. I, I mean, I wouldn't really ever class myself as a reenactor. Um, I was, I'm more of what I call it an interpreter. So right. uh, it's not really a hobby. It's something that I do. It, I do it for a living, but it, but I love it. It's kind of part of my life as well. Um, so no, I think the hatting and, and the interpretation kind of all happens around the same time. But it's a wonderful community that are all very enthusiastic about, passionate about craft, about the history, about getting discovering more that, that hasn't been you know, new research. It's a very fulfilling um, community to be involved in. That's amazing. Going back to that term, experimental archaeology, mm. it's a really interesting term and not one you hear very often. So like, what does that mean to you? It's a great phrase. I've totally stolen it. It's definitely not mine. Um, <laughs> I, so I've, obviously I've stolen it from the archaeologists. Uh, but I kind of... <sighs> Yeah, I, I think it's quite fitting to what I do. In the past, I think there's been a tendency for makers and um, historians to be very separate entities, and there's very they can actually be quite snobby about each other. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of overlap in the past, but today there's a lot more interest in 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 collaborating. Um, and so I think experimental archaeology kind of comes from the archaeology side where they're looking at artifacts and they're trying to work out how they were used and, and what they did even half the time they don't even know what things are so they start playing around and, and reconstructing things um so it, it kind of it, it kind of covers what i do mine's more the other way i mean i am in essence i'm a maker i've always classed myself as a, a maker of, of everything but now I, I look much more to history and the academic side to help fill in the gaps, um, to understand things that haven't been, haven't maybe haven't been documented or researched before. So um, there's other phrases as well, like original practice, which applies to um, to theatre and particularly like the Globe, where they are trying to reconstruct the, the whole show is, is as close as possible to how it would have been at the time. So it'd be like Shakespeare and stuff. So it's all male actors, and and the costumes are all like hand stitched and naturally dyed. So I've been involved with with shows with them in the past, which has been a, a fantastic experience. And you learn so much when you're doing it as well. But you you couldn't really learn just by you know looking at books. Yeah. So authenticity really is is very important in your work. Mm, I've been very focused on authenticity. That's been my prime goal is to achieve something as authentic as possible. Just because I mean, there's so many other people doing other elements. Sorry, other other areas. And I realized that nobody was really studying this subject sort of British hat making 
the authentic way that it was it was created and produced in the past that I thought and I tend to like to do things that other people don't already do that kind of you know that floats my boat is doing new new research um so it's been quite a good restriction to have it a lot of people would probably think it was a bit too restricting for them but for me it gives me it gives me guidelines and rules and I'm like well I'm not you know I'm not going to do that because they didn't do that and if I want to learn how they did it I have to do it exactly Sometimes I really, really wish that I could just time travel. It would make it an awful lot easier to learn some of these things. But this is the way that I found that I'm able to to relearn something that there is no one to learn from. Because hat making in the past is well, if we're going back like 500 years, there's very little documentation of it. So um, it's very much experimental archaeology. Mm. So uh, talking about travel, if anybody's looked at your Instagram account. They would have seen some really exciting pictures of um, a trip that you did recently to do some research. Can, can you tell us where you went? Yeah, well, my last trip was to, to Mexico, um, which was, yeah, it was incredibly exciting and very privileged. So um, that was to to meet and document the knowledge and the craft of, a, of what is the last hat maker in Mexico. So um, I discovered um, that there's a very specific type of, of, of felt making that is is traditional in Britain. Um, but fairly recently, I discovered that actually there were still people continuing this craft in small areas all over the world. Um, more, most of them seem to be in South America. So I managed to track down this this old hatter in uh, in Mexico, and um, it, which was no mean feat, I can tell you, because I mean he, he really lives very rurally, no phone or anything like that, and um, and everything has to be done sort of translated because it's all in Spanish or. So eventually, yeah, I did manage to, to to make contact with him, and I managed to crowdfund enough to take myself and a photographer and a translator over, and spend a few days with this man who's he's in his seventies now, and with no one left to pass the knowledge on to. So that was very, um, it was very exciting, a, a, a huge privilege, um, and that's one of the aspects of my research that I would never have dreamed in a million years was going to happen. Is that I'm now planning to document to find and document any of these old hat makers in the rest of the world and just preserve what they know because it's all related it's all linked into our own heritage the british heritage and the european heritage and and south america because the craft was taken from spain to south america in the 16th century so we're all one big family of hat makers really <laughs> you know we're all from the, our heritage has the same roots wow so in case any of these um hatters are out there listening or anybody knows yeah. them <laughs> what is it in particular that that they do that you're you're looking to find out about okay I might have to take a little step backwards to start okay. so initially I I started making felt hats just using a very rudimentary type of felt that is kind of used by a lot of craft felt makers um, all over Europe and and to my knowledge it, it's kind of developed from techniques that are borrowed from Central Asia, which still have a very strong tradition of felt making. But I, as I started to research, um, I realized that, that Britain actually had its own felting tradition. It's just that nobody knew, knew anything about it because it died out from, uh, from 1860 when the process became mechanized. And that's kind of where history begins for most people. They seem to think, they seem to not know, you know, the industrial revolution is when hatting exploded, felt hatting. Um, but my interest is anything pre-industrial. 
So I started to find um, illustrations of people making felt hats using some very bizarre tools that mean, meant nothing. to I couldn't understand what they were doing. They were really, really <laughs> odd. Um, but the more I dug, like little bits of clues, little bits of the jigsaw started to piece together. And I started to, to work out a little bit about what's going on. So this, um, this technique of, of felt making... Um, it's very organized. It was very much, I mean, you did have cottage industries in, in, out in the country, but generally it was a fairly kind of like you'd have like small factories. And when I say factories, I mean like production line, not mm. people with machines, um, making these extremely high quality felt hats. So if you think of hats that were worn in the 16th, 17th century, cavaliers, cavaliers had these massive, big, wide brimmed hats. <laughs> And there's still many surviving in museums. So I've been to that's part of my research is to look at the original ones surviving. And I was totally blown away by the quality of, of this felt, which I would say, stick my neck out here and say they were far superior to the machine made ones that you get today. So I realized that this was actually, you know, a very developed, very highly skilled um, craft. And I, I wanted to know how to do this. You know, I couldn't find any books on how to so that's the kind of the, the core, the thing that my research has driven. I've been driven to try and recreate this this quality of felt, and this is the same craft that I was looking that I was finding in France and uh, Hungary, Austria, and Mexico, um, and all over South America. So this it's this same craft. Um, that that's fascinating, and you know we can see some of the images of the hats that you've made on Instagram. And they are beautiful. The quality just speaks for itself. So, mm. yeah, it's amazing. Well, to be fair, the first hats that I made were pretty rustic. To, you know, I was using the same technique that most people will be using. And so I kind of, I, I was very restricted to myself. The first hats I made, I only made medieval hats. I felt it was appropriate really only to make rustic hats for a period when they had rustic hats. Um, and it's only as my skill level has developed that I would actually even tackle something from a later period. Because if you were making, it's, it's just wrong to make a big cavalier hat out of something that's all lumpy and bumpy for me. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I probably would say it's only in the last five, 10 years that I've actually really developed the skills that I can actually make something that is kind of competing with, with the, uh, the machine mate that felt that, that you get. So it's taken me a long time to get here. It's not a, yeah. A lot of the knowledge I have, I got from a, a hat maker in Hungary who actually only passed away uh, about four years ago. Um, but I was really, really lucky just to catch, you know, to, to communicate with him and just, just little bits of information that I was really stuck on. Um, and then there was another hat maker in Austria who died two years ago. He was the last one that, and he made hats out of rabbit fur. Um, and not many there's really not very many <laughs> and certainly none in Europe has to, to the very best of my knowledge and I have looked extremely hard um I don't think there's any left in Europe I think it's, it's now extinct well apart from me <laughs> <laughs> so of all the, the different makers that you've met so far and you know in far-flung places all over the world what did you feel that they had in common were there any particular traits that they had that kind of lent themselves to the craft yeah uh, definitely um it's a it's what I would call a trade more than a craft mm. you know they, it's what they do because their father did it and their grandfather did it and I said the guy in Hungary had the family tree 
painted on on this wall and it went back through many 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 generations of hatters and he could sort of document them traveling through Romania and, and different, different countries so it's um it's not like a vacation that you would you would choose it's it's almost like it's passed on to you and so it, it has a very different attitude approach to to the I'll call it a craft or trade. Um, so um, they don't have social media. You know, it's none of this marketing. They're just <laughs> supplying local people. And very often it's if there's like a strong folk tradition in the area, they might be providing hats for costumes. Or um, the, in the case of Hungary, there's a strong shepherding community. So they that was his main customer base was, was, was shepherds. Wow. Um, okay. I mean, they looked at, I mean, they, co- they were, took such pride in their costumes. It wasn't, well, clothing, that's co- it's more than costumes. Mm. And the hats were a really important part. They defined which kind of shepherd you were because you have shepherds for horses, shepherds for pigs, for cows. You know, it was a, it, it was, look, when I went to Hungary to, to study you know, the, his craft, it, it was like stepping back in time about 300 years. Um, so very, very different than the British millinery hatting scene. Mm. Um, it's just a, a little capsule of time, um, and they definitely have a different different clientele and a different mindset. But they're also generally quite secretive, and and traditionally they would they would be because you wouldn't pass on your knowledge because it you don't want to, somebody else to take it. You know, yeah. It's, there's a lot of competition, so many of the hatters, like the chap in in Austria, I could not for love nor money persuade him to um, share his knowledge <laughs> with me. Um, and I totally understand it because I know where he's coming from. I know the kind of lineage of, of a hat maker of, of his sort. So um, that's why a lot of a lot of knowledge is gone is that people don't want to share. Very, it's very different, very different than the British scene. So as well as, as the felt making, you also make woven hats and bags from rushes. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So how, how did that start, <laughs> that side of what you do? That, that just happened one day when I decided I'd had enough of people saying, no, I don't want a, hat, a felt hat. It's too hot. <laughs> no, I don't, right. I can't, I'm fed up of hearing this. I'm going to start making sun hats. <laughs> uh, how do I make a sun hat? You know, felt, the, typically the felt hats I make are pretty thick and heavy, you know, like two or three times heavier than normal hats. So um, I, I sort of, yeah, I, I already do lots of other skills. So one And one of those is basket making. So um, I, I decided I would have a, a try and incorporate that. So Again, I got a book and I learned how to make a, a hat out of rushes. And now the rushes that I get, are, they grow mostly in the Midlands, um, although they do grow all over the country, but they, they grow better in the Midlands. And they are what are usually used for chair seating, um, where they're kind of, I always call them Goldilocks chairs, but you know, like you twist yeah. it and you wrap yeah. it around the seat. But they grow incredibly long um, and they're very supple. So they, they, they're fantastic for, for weaving with. So um, I, I started off just making a, a kind of boater style. Uh, and then I just developed from there. Again, I was my main customers were historical clients. So I was making replicas of original kind of sun hats. And they're a very popular, you know, they've been, they, they get bought by gardeners. And I've got some Hampton Court, I think. And they've been on Tudor Monastery Farm and yeah, so they're, they're, but the material itself is just wonderful. You know, it has a very, um, it's got loads of colours in it. It goes from green, orange, brown, and um, I just weave them, but they're beautiful in their own, you know, they can't help but be beautiful. 
It was great. Yeah, they are. I've seen the pictures of the large top hats that you've made mm. with rushes, and they're just stunning. Like the colours really are gorgeous, and it just yeah. you just want to reach in and touch it. <laughs> yeah, and the material is quite it's chunky, but it's inside it's um it's got like a spongy pith, so that the products actually look like they would be very heavy, but when you actually put them on your head, they're surprisingly light. So that's quite a nice surprise is that they look, you know, they're, they're good and solid, but actually they don't have a lot, of, a lot of weight to them. So they're, they're good for making hats, I think. Well, that's interesting. So how long would it generally take you to weave, say, one of those top hats? One of those top hats? Oh, well, I made a top hat for, for, for the Worshipful Company of Basket Makers competition, and that took me two days. But um, that was a particularly uh, a fancy one. You know, I was yeah. having normally... I, when you're doing historical stuff you can sometimes kind of like they want things to look a little bit rustic but when you're working things for a competition <laughs> they've got to be perfect and it was quite a yeah. struggle to be honest to be perfect <laughs> the basket makers are very critical you know they're like you know if you've got little kinks and bumps in places that they're like Ooh, they spot them straight away <laughs> so that had to be absolutely totally perfect so that did take me quite a long time and because it was a flared um a flared topper I had to to obviously build it onto uh, like a puzzle block or a collapsible block um, so that I could get the block out afterwards. Oh, of course. Um, but I've got, I liked flare top hats. It's one of my favourite shapes, so I've got quite a lot of those blocks. <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful. Rachel, you mentioned the Weald and Downland Living Museum a couple of times, and some people might know that from the Repair Shop programme on BBC One in the UK. How long have you been working with them? Well, I used to visit it when I was a child because um, I'm from Sussex originally. Um, so it was always a bit of a dream place mm. to, to, to be. So when I was in, I was invited about 10 years ago to first demonstrate there. And uh, what I do is I, I set up my, my hat workshop in one of the original 15th century shops that they have in their market square. And I, I'm all dressed in my 16th century outfit and I have all my all my equipment that's all replica from from that period. Um, and I, I I make hats all day and people come in and they can ask questions. And it, re- it really is, of all the places that I do, it really is like stepping back in time. Yeah. It's, it, it, and it's always a bit like moving home as well because I have to take, like all the stuff that I take is what I use at home and part of my decoration. So like I, it's just like everything has to come out of the house, pile in the car and take it there. Wow. If kids are always moaning. They say the house is like a museum anyway. So. <laughs> But it's a fabulous, a fabulous place to, yeah. to be. And there's also in the building that I that I work in, there's um an original chimney, which is basically a hole in the in the roof. <laughs> um, so I can have my hatter's basin, which is basically a table with a, a hot with a metal plate in the top, and then you have a brazier underneath with charcoal burning to heat the felt as you work. So it's the it's the only place where I can, I'm actually allowed to do that and have a yeah. real fire. So the Weald and Down and Living Museum sounds amazing. So uh, when is the next time that you're going to be there? Um, well, hopefully, if all goes to plan, I'll be there for their Heritage Crafts at Risk weekend, which is on the 7th and 8th of August, um, where they'll, they'll have various demonstrations by different craftspeople mm. that are on the, the red list of endangered crafts. Fantastic. Come along. I mean, go there anyway. It's a fabulous place to go. Yeah, it sounds mm. it. So you you kind of go by on social media and as business names, the Crafty Beggars and Rachel Frost Hatter. Um, mm. Is there like a differentiation between the two or just two different names you go by? Or Yeah, well, I mean, I started the Crafty Beggars in 1998. So been, they've been going for quite a long time. 
so that was my I mean I, I'm a bit of a Luddite really when it comes to social media I only really started Instagram a, a couple of years ago and so I started it as the Crafty Beggars and I share my processes um, of all the different crafts I do with some sort of anecdotes and various things uh, but I have to be honest as well I never really thought of myself as a hatter I always thought of myself as a maker of, of many things um, it just happened that everything that I did seemed to manifest itself as a hat. So even if I was doing like woodwork, it would relate to hats or, you know, I might bake a hat or, or it might be leather work or natural dyeing or spinning and knitting and it all fed back into hat making. Um, and I also know that that's what most people know me as for, despite all the other crafts. So um, it made sense to, to kind of create a new account that was that focused specifically on hats. So the Rachel Frost Hatter is a new is a new thing, really. I only decided about a year ago that I'm I'm definitely I'm a hatter. I'm a hatter. You know, like people say, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" And I'm like, "I no, I just like making things." But okay, I'm a hatter now. So, so the hat account is 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 just to be a bit clearer, and it just focuses on headwear. Um, whereas the Crafty Beggars just it covers everything. Yeah, so it also covers. But I also I'm a musician, so it covers it covers everything. It's a bit more eclectic. It covers hats as well. So. Depends how nerdy you are about hats. Yeah. You just want hats. Go to Rachel Frost Hatter. Got it. <laughs> So I'll, I'll just explain as well. We should probably mention that for people outside the industry, um, traditionally hatters make hats for men, and milliners make women's hats. Um, but these days we're not quite so strict about that. We're not so binary, and we can all wear whatever we like, whatever we please. Um, and actually, Rachel, what is your favourite type of headwear? to wear yourself for me to wear myself okay well I have to uh, confess that I find it quite hard to wear hats on a day-to-day basis so I'm <laughs> I you know I um but I'm forcing myself more and more so but I'm very much a practical practical person you know I, um, you usually find me in wellies so fascinators <laughs> and fancy things don't really go with me so I, I, for me it would be a fedora it would be a tall fedora just to give you that extra I'm quite short you know extra <laughs> bit of height and a bit of status. So, yeah, I'd go for something that was very practical and kept the rain off and keep my head warm. Mm. Sounds great. And with you on the height aspect, that's what I'm always searching for. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do need to go back to, uh, you know, London Hat Week, I guess, was it 2019 when we first met you in person? And I believe I'd seen the hat you wore for the Hat Talk competition. I believe it was originally made for that. And Tell us about that hat because, I mean, honestly, how wide was it? Just so people can picture. <laughs> okay, so it was a bike, yeah, a bicorn, yeah. Um, side to side bicorn, and it yeah. uh, was over a meter wide. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I took it from an original uh, painting from a, a, a Parisian uh, posh lady from the 18th century. So that was the kind of like the inspiration. And I was using it as, a, as an opportunity to kind of show off what could be done with handmade felt. So I kind of threw everything at it, really, you know, but just the fact that it, it holds it, its own weight at that distance. Mm. Um, I mean, my plan was to, um, I took it with me to London Hat Week. I didn't really <laughs> intend to wear it, to be honest. But I turned up and I queued up outside the party with this box. It was over a metre long. And the woman next to me said, is that your hat then? I was like, yeah, it is. She goes, oh, it wasn't, I didn't mean it. Right? So I took it, I had, a, I had a much, I think I had a trilby on or something. And then I was like, my sister was with me. She was like, go on, go on, wear it. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to, aren't I? So I shuffled off into the bathroom and took this enormous hat, which has got two baubles attached to the end of the, of the, of the, of the, of the end of it, and put it on. And um, 
I, you know what? I loved it. I loved wearing it. And I loved the attention. Everybody was looking at me. <laughs> but you had to walk sideways. That was the only yeah. problem. You couldn't walk forward. And you couldn't, you could nod because that's, what, you know, anyway, dynamically that worked. But if you shook your head from side to side, it was a nightmare. It was just, yeah. But, um, but now, I'm super glad we took it. There could be a line for those in social distancing times. Yeah, they could um, be. They could be. There's a fabulous photo on your Instagram of us, of us three, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm socially distanced by hat. <laughs> no, that was very impressive. And I mean, it, it, it was over the top and amazing to see, but the fact that you could wear it and it balanced and, and that you had made it from scratch was yeah. super impressive. So yeah, <laughs> definitely a good example of what can be done. And, and to think that that is you know, was taken from a, a painting is mind boggling. You, you'd be amazed at some of the fashions that are through, through history. There's some <laughs> absolutely bonkers hats that, you know, the medieval period particularly. I mean, nothing's new, you know, we can't, we always think that we're creating new fashions, but, you know, they were, there were some pretty bonkers hats <laughs> years ago. So what's the next challenge then? What mad hat are you going to make next? Mm. Well, at the moment, oh, I don't know whether I can say this. This is like you know, secret. Um, no, I'm I'm trying to. I I like working with the rushes that I that I we with the hats out of. But um, because I live in Scotland, um, they don't really grow up here. And one of the things that I I is important to me, or that I really strive for, is to work with local materials that I've actually gathered myself. Mm. So um, I will go out and like gather. I used to keep my own sheep so that I could actually shear my own wool and you know, do the, everything right back to the, the basic, um, the, the raw materials. Mm. Um, so at the moment, I'm exploring uh, birch bark, not birch bark, sorry, willow, willow bark. At this time of year, you can actually uh, peel the bark off, off the willow. And, and I'd much prefer, that, well, I'd like the idea of using something that actually grows in, in my local area. So mm. that's, I'm doing a lot more with that. So also with plant dyes, using plant materials to get the, the natural colours, but harvesting things that grow locally. Because a lot of the, lot of the colours, um, the stronger colours that you get in natural dyeing, come from the other side of the world. Um, mm. And there's so much knowledge, particularly in Scotland, actually, of natural plant dyes that um, I, I want to explore more of that and integrate that into my work. And I think that today in the fashion industry as well, people are much more interested in sustainability and. Yeah and the process and, and all the things that I've actually always done for years. And I'm, so I really want to try and hone in on that and work on that more. And also um, I want to do more uh, contemporary stuff. So I've spent 20 years just doing historical stuff. And now I want to take those traditions, those crafts that, I, that I've learned and apply them to contemporary designs. But I don't want to lose the, the skills or the processes. I want to stay true to those. So um, I'm using still using the same tools, materials and techniques that a 16th century hatter would use, but maybe the designs are like the bicorn with the baubles on the end, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. a, a little bit more my own kind of thing. Oh, fabulous. Well, we're looking forward to seeing what, what we'll be watching your Instagram closely to see these new processes and creations. Sounds amazing and fascinating. Lots of fun. I mean, I'm yeah. just like yeah. a kid playing, really. I'm just <laughs> doing, doing proper work. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be fun, you know. Yeah. Kind of. yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a good ethos. 
that's the other thing it's really uh, for me it's always important to keep learning new skills yeah. and I know it's quite hard for some people they just like you feel they need to focus on one but for me it's like mm. the more knowledge you have the more mm. understanding you have the more possibilities you have mm. um you know so I'm not restricted to products or, or materials from shops because I, I always want to strip it right back to the beginning and learn the whole process even if I don't do the whole process every time mm. I want to have tried it so that I can understand it and that it sort of informs the direction that my work goes in mm. the process is, is absolutely key to everything that I do really. This is kind of off piece but you know you're kind of a sponge for all this uh, knowledge that is potentially going to become extinct otherwise do you have any sort of plans to pass that on in, in any form of teaching or writing or you know if you don't want to say that's fine but I want no I do what I definitely planning to write something so I've a lot of the research that I've done has been more has been the academic side so I've like gathered like collected lots and lots of material and most of it is very it's very small it might be like a sentence within a 17th century encyclopedia or something but when you join them all together it paints a bigger picture and then never to my knowledge there has never been a study of this subject but there's still a lot more for me to learn unfortunately so I, I don't I'm not going to be a publication imminently um, but I still feel very much like I'm on the journey. I haven't reached the end. I feel like I've just, I've got over over the top of the hill, but I've got a lot more to learn. So um, it, it's going to be, yeah, hopefully there'll be a yeah. written publication at some point. It's good to know. Don't hold your breath. Have a book launch at London <laughs> yeah. that week. So we're putting yeah. our pitch in here first. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Inspire the next generation of, of makers. It's, it's good. Yeah. I like the idea of um, being partly instructional so that people could, learn from the book and theoretically I mean it is a very complicated craft it's not something that this is the felt making that I'm talking about now it's not really something that is easy to learn from a book it's much better you know traditionally you would do a seven-year apprenticeship then you'd go and be a journeyman um, before graduating to be a master um, and then you take on your own apprentices so it's, it is a very is a very involved process and, and it's not it's not a, it's not really a craft that's why I was reluctant to call it a craft earlier because it is it's just so complicated and, and involved but I'm sure you know if, if, if I do my job properly I, I will hopefully be able to write it up in such a way that the, the knowledge will be it will be preserved in, in a form that people could theoretically pick it up. That would be amazing well Rachel thank you so much for joining us it's been really interesting just listening to you and and hearing about all the different parts of the skills that you're involved with and and learning and and still researching we could talk to you for a lot longer but um we'll have to call it a day there for now but thank you very much thank you so much for for inviting me yeah it's been a it's an honor thank you thank you thank you so that was Rachel Frost with us Becky Weaver and Georgina Abbott of London Hat Week on Morley Radio to find out more about London Hat Week, visit www.londonhatweek.com or follow at London Hat Week on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. <laughs>